The Money Show. Personal Finance. Now, Personal Finance is brought to you by Discovery Bank, the future of banking now. Warren Ingram, personal financial advisor and executive director at Galileo Capital, joining us this evening for our personal finance feature as usual. It's a good evening to you, Warren. So, did fund managers actually help investors in the pandemic? I mean, did it feel like they, they offered enough? Uh, it's a it's a great question, Arabile. I think um, if I look at uh, you know the the numbers, because I think you know we shouldn't give our opinions. I guess we should look at at research. And uh, and every year, um, Standard and Poor's do this thing called the SPIVA research, which is the the, the active fund managers against the, the index. And uh, and for the year to the end of 2020, it, it looks like they didn't do a great job. I must say the the, the fund managers. So so for the for the whole of the year. 79% of fund managers in South Africa couldn't beat the, the, the top 50 index in, in, in the country. So, so, I mean, turn it on its head. Only 21 out of every 100 fund managers could actually do a better job than, than just buying the index and, you know, putting in your drawer and forgetting about it. So, so I think the very short answer is no, they, they unfortunately didn't do a great job. They also didn't do a great job over the three years or the five years. So, I mean, over five years, only seven out of every hundred fund managers beat, beat the top fifty index in, in, sure. in this country, and it, I, I mean it's it's for me it's astonishing you know to, to look at this and you say uh, I mean I think South Africa's got some particular issues you know I think it's uh, we always have to be balanced and fair so you, you know it's important to know that you know forty um, if you look at the the, the kind of the, the whole of the forty or fifty biggest shares on, on the JSE four or five shares make up more than half of the value. Of the, of those uh, of those top fifty shares. Yeah. So, if you want to beat the index and you're a fund manager, it means you've got to get the call right on four shares. You've got to say, I'm going to buy more than the index, or I'm going to buy less than the index on these four shares, and then I can do better. Which I think is a heck of a tough job to 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 you know to, to try and do for a fund manager. But the reality is, they they get paid a lot of money. You know, they have big fancy buildings and they they drive fancy cars and. As we can see with some of them that are moving overseas, they, you know, they're billionaires. Uh, so, so surely they should earn their money, you know? Look, they certainly should. And I suppose one would wonder then, is, is it that things are becoming a little more volatile? Or, you know, things becoming a little more difficult to read? Let's consider then in the last five years or so, you've also had presidents who have kind of swapped things around and changed things as, uh, for, for the market picture, haven't they? That, that, that's true, and I and I think um, if you if you look at the, the let, let's say the volatile conditions, uh, the question is when we paying a fund manager, are we paying them? We're, we're certainly not paying them to have a crystal ball, right? I mean, we we, we it's, yep. it's unfair to expect them to be able to predict that uh, you know president changes or a pandemic arrives. That's that that's a ridiculous expectation. But what we can expect from them is that. They, they tend to avoid the big loser shares, you know, the, the companies that, that, that blow up, uh, or, you know, or are managed badly. And, and, and typically they should be choosing the companies that are better managed. And, and so you should start to, uh, eliminate the, the role of good luck or bad luck over time. You know, you, you should start to see the skill of fund managers being reflected in, in longer term performance. And, and that's where the, you know, these, the, the SPIVA research gets interesting because, it seems that you know that the the longer the time frame, the the fewer the number of fund managers are are, are around that can actually beat the index. So what what it's telling me is that unfortunately skill is not reflected in that. You know we're not seeing their ability to to deliver better returns. 
And and so I, I'm coming to a, a kind of a, I mean, it's a horrible conclusion that, you know, if you're going to buy shares in South Africa, uh, you're probably better off buying the index. I'm not saying all fund managers are useless and we should avoid all fund managers. I think that that would be a mistake as well. I think uh, if you ask me, you know, wh why would I pay a fund manager? I think I'm, I would pay them because they do, they have been proven to do a good job uh, in, in things like the, the, the cash markets so and money markets and those kinds of things. And, and they are able to do a good job in balanced funds, you know, so, so those typically would be funds that, that have a combination of cash bonds, property and shares. And, and the, the decision to move between those asset classes in, in, um, is where I think they still add value and certainly can reduce the risk of, of investing somewhat. But I can't see in the numbers, uh, any real reason to, to buy, uh, the classic classification in the unit trust world is general equity. It basically just means unit trust to buy shares. I can't see the justification to pay a fund manager one or one and a half percent a year mm. when I can buy an index at 0.1 or 0.2% a year. And I know I'm going to beat sort of more than 90% of these fund managers. It doesn't make sense to me anymore. So what happens now? I mean, you, you've said that don't throw the baby out of the bathwater on this one, right? Don't, don't necessarily do away with fund managers. So, the important element will be to how do you pick your fund manager then? Ah, great, great, uh, great, uh, multi-billion dollar question. Out of you there. <laughs> I think, um, uh, I, I think the answer is that, that for me, I, I get a lot of comfort from fund managers that are able to, to stick to a, a particular investment philosophy. And, and I'm not saying that one investment philosophy works better than the other. So, so let's just say in general, they're kind of two big schools of thought. The one is that you buy an investment story and and you 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 do your re research on that investment story. And I think a great example of that would be you know buying an Amazon or buying a Tesla, where you can't say let me go and look at the the, the you know the the value of all the machines that they own and all the buildings that they own, and you know if if the share price is worth. Uh, less than that, then it's a good thing to buy. What you have to do is you have to say, let me look at the business case and the market that they're operating in and the potential for them to grow. So you're buying the business case. And, and if, you know, there are fund managers that, that have got a good history in doing that. So, so that's the one school of thought. And then what I would like to see in a fund manager like that is that they do that in all conditions at all times. So they don't chop and change their tune depending on whether they've performed well or they're getting a bit of a, you know, dodgy, uh, dodgy media response from someone like me that's giving them a hard time. They stick to their knitting and they, 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 they consistent in the way that they do things. The other kind of manager is then the one that will look at in a business and say, if I add all the machinery, the, the brand, uh, you know, the buildings that they own, and I look at the share price today, it's worth less than the, the value of all of the assets. And, and that's generally what they would call a value manager. And again, you, you pick a value manager who's consistent in all market conditions. So, so I think that that's one big uh, characteristic. And the second is definitely fees. You know, I think investment fees by, by fund managers have been high, but they are coming down. And so to me, I want fund managers who are going to, you know, charge a reasonable fee for their services. And I think that's somewhere around 1% is a, is a good fee. Uh, and, and, and then I want to know that they've got a breadth and depth of, of managers in their team. It's not just one person sitting at home behind their computer with, you know, the secret source and no one else knows how to manage the money. It needs to be a, a strong, good team with older managers, younger managers, you know, and, and diverse backgrounds, diverse skills. Then that to me says that that's probably a good manager to select. Sure. So much thought 
really kind of goes into just how you're going to make it work. How are you going to get somebody who will hopefully beat these indexes, particularly over five or so years? Um, how much rise then has there been of sort of individual education when it comes to the markets and, and, and managing your own funds and portfolio, etc. Do you think that elements like these have created a, a scenario where people are like, let me try and do this myself? Absolutely. I, I think it's interesting to look at the role of, of private investors in markets. You know, I think in South Africa, if you, if you were to, to, to go back, you know, to 20 or 30 years, we had many more shares, uh, you know, on, on the stock exchange. You know, nowadays, I think there are probably only really eighty or a hundred investable shares on the on the JSE. But but you know, if you go if you go back into ancient times, you know, like in the mid nineteen nineties when when I was still young, then uh, the, the, there were kind of you know many more somewhere around you know six seven hundred uh, investable shares, and 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 then you know the opportunity for a private investor to find a company. That wasn't really being tracked or, or monitored by the big institutions. You know, there were just many more opportunities to do that and to and to find those unloved gems, which which then become the next big uh, company on the exchange. Nowadays, there's so few shares that that analysts you know can, can generally cover most of them. But I do think the rise of indexed investments, so exchange traded funds, has had a very big role. And and then I think the, the the interesting thing is the role of information. You know, it was really hard years ago to actually find information about shares and about the JSE. You know, you you had to look at a newspaper and 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 read the share page every day. And nowadays, you know, we've got so much information. I mean, the, the radio is obviously a brilliant platform for that, but but the the internet, uh, you know, and, and the bloggers and the like, the podcasters have, are, are are kind of providing a lot more free information that I think is of quality. So it is it is opening up a private investors' eyes again in South Africa to to, to investing, and and then I think the, the rise of of private investors in in the US is well I shouldn't say the rise they've been there for a long time, but but certainly you know the private investor there has has shown the way again that you know private investors can move markets um, which we haven't really seen for a long time. So so I do think that that, that uh, you know education has played a role, and then I just think that the the rise of very low cost. Uh, ways of buying shares through through exchange traded funds or low cost platforms has has played a huge role as well. You know, in, you know, twenty thirty years ago, you had to phone. That was the first thing you had to phone a stockbroker, and they were usually intimidating, uh, grumpy old men, and and you know they would bark at you, and you would you know kind of you know squeak over the phone, mm. and then they would uh, choose to buy or sell those shares on your behalf. And they would charge you a fortune for doing that. And I think those days are gone, thankfully. And and you know, electronic trading now is a lot cheaper than it was in the past. So interesting to get a grip of an understanding from people as well to to get a sense of how they're actually doing with this. Are they are they actually plotting their own um, sort of trading, the you know buying of their own shares? I know I have a group of friends who uh, aren't unnecessarily you know in the mix of things when it comes to you know markets and financials etc. But are so keen in investing money and finding out how to get this right and how to do it for themselves. Well, Warren, let's have a chat a little bit after this then. Um, and we get some questions as well from one of our listeners. Plus, we'll also unpack the phrase of the week. It is of our personal finance feature, talking about whether fund managers helped investors during the pandemic. 
The Money Show. Personal Finance. We're still into our personal finance feature then this Thursday evening here on The Money Show. Um, Warren Ingram joining us as usual when we get into this segment. Did fund managers help investors in the pandemic? Now, Warren, before the break, yes, we spoke about, uh, you know, fund managers' relevance, just uh, whether consumers need to be getting it on to themselves and making it their own onerous uh, sort of element then when they're looking at investing a whole lot more. But we also did get uh, a listener's question here. And the question says, uh, hi, I have some money that I would like to give to my children before I pass away because I fear that estates take a long time to finalize. I don't want them to wait for the process of the estate to be concluded. Someone has told me that I will have to pay donations tax, though. How does this donations tax work, Warren? Great question. I'm, I'm just want to find out from the listener. Can I become one of your children? Uh, it sounds like a very <laughs> pick g- generous me, parent. Pick me. <laughs> yeah, I'll be there. I'll be good. Um, so, so I think it's a, it's a, it's a really important uh, topic to talk about. You, you know, when um, when we give money to to people who are adults, you know, over the age of eighteen, um, th- then Sarah says that uh, that for um, for every. 20, well, let's say out of every 100 rand, we would have to pay a tax of 20 rand out of every 100 as a donations tax when we give money away. And it doesn't matter whether it's our children or uh, or strangers, we, we are going to pay that tax. The, the only people that we can donate money to without paying tax would be between a husband and a wife or a spouse. I should say it's not just husband and wives. So, so that's the only time that you won't pay a donations tax. But, but there, there are a couple of small little uh, loopholes or opportunities, I guess. And, and the first big one is that we're allowed to, to make donations of up to 100,000 rand per year to anybody without paying that donations tax. So if you, you know, if you've got an estate and you, and you worry that, you know, what, what, one day you're going to pass away and, and, and leave, you know, a whole lot of money behind and you'd like to start solving that problem earlier, then the first opportunity is to give give your your children a hundred thousand rand a year, and it's important to know that it's a hundred thousand rand from the person who's giving it away. It's not to say that if you've got five children, you can give them each a hundred thousand rand because you, you you are going to pay a lot of donations tax. Then you you can donate a hundred thousand to to them. In other words, you can give them each twenty thousand rand, and and it must then total a hundred thousand. Um, and anything over that, you would start to pay tax. So so I think that that's a, a very efficient way of of doing that, and, and obviously, the longer or the, the larger number of years that you do that, the smaller your estate will be. So, so I think that that's probably the best way to do it uh, completely legally and and without paying any tax. But clearly, you don't want to give away all your money because then you you, know, you need to live on something, and you know longevity is a big issue for us. But but I think Arabile, that's the first part of the the answer. Uh, and then the second thing is you can do certain things, for example. Um, you know, the, the, this parent could loan money to their children, and and uh, you know they've got the use of the capital, and just know that when they when they pass away, when when this person passes away, that there'll need to be a settling of the accounts, and that you know the loans might need to be re- repaid, but at least uh, you know they'll have use of the money for for a number of years, and and there'll be some interest that they'll have to pay, but but they 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 can do that as an example. So so I think that those are probably the two main ways. There, there, there's some complicated ways where you could do it you know in a in a trust and those kinds of things but but we need another hour or two of the of the show to to kind of go through those and and all the ins and outs yeah this i i think it it really does tell you the story right that 
it's, it isn't just straightforward. There isn't just one way. And a whole lot more information needs to be sort of put out uh, when it comes to things like this um, and, and how listeners and, and anybody really can, can find out more with regards to estate planning, um, pension planning as well, you know, all of those uh, little features uh, also. I mean, it, it, it becomes very interesting then because the next process here will be those children perhaps looking to invest that money or put it away for their invest uh, pension or, or whatnot at a later stage. You know, there's, there's, there's more implications at that stage, isn't there? 100%. And, and I think, the, uh, you know, you, you're, you're touching on a couple of, uh, I mean, amazing points here. The first one is, you know, clearly make sure that your, your will is up to date as well, because it's, it's one thing to say, I don't, I don't want them to, to wait for money, but, 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 you know, it could be a real disaster if your will's not correctly structured and it's not done properly. And secondly, if it's out of date and, and, you know, you, you forget, for example, about grandchildren or, you know, uh, you know, favored aunts or uncles or cousins or nieces or whatever the deal is. So, so, you know, I mean, a, a will is a critical, you know, element of, of this kind of estate planning. Um, and, and then the second thing is, you know, um, open communication as well. I think that's, you know, often, you know, parents don't really talk to their children about money and about what happens when they pass away. And so, you know, what's important to, to a parent might not be as important to a child. You know, for example, saying, you know, we never want to sell the family house, you know, and, and the, the kids are saying, look, we're never going to live in a family house. So please, you know, let's, let's rather try and sell it now and, you know, don't hold on to it and pay all the costs of maintaining it, you know, move into a smaller place and do something better with the money. So, so I think you're right. There, there, there are a lot of uh, variations to consider. And, and I think, you know, starting with planning early and, and making sure that your will is correct is, is a huge issue. And then there are things like retirement funds, you know, where if you've got a retirement fund and you've got excess money, you know, then one of the things to do is to say, well, let me use up my, my excess money and give my retirement fund to my children, which is allowed. It's that, you know, you can nominate them as beneficiaries because that's the one way that money can go from one generation to the next without paying, uh, donations tax or estate duty. You know, mm. it's, it's the one. A loophole that we can use all right let's get into our phrase for the week then what is inflation i i, I love this you know we always hear um you know i mean in the news from time to time you know the the, the um news reader will say well you know cpi has gone up by three percent and and then immediately after that you, you kind of watch social media and listen to your friends and they all they all complain because they say well you know that's you know, if that's inflation, you know, and it's 3%, my cost of living is not going up by 3%, it's going up by 30% a year, and, you know, this we're being lied to, or what's going on? Um, and I think it's an important thing to understand, you know, that that when we talk about CPI, you know, th- that's that's really a, a thing ca- called the c- consumer price index, and it's trying to measure uh, a basket of of things that people spend their money on. So in, it'll include food, it'll include, include transport and medical and some uh, services costs, and what it tries to do is to say, what what has that basket of goods uh, done uh, from one year to the next? You know, has it gone up in, in cost or down? And unfortunately, with inflation, it almost always goes up. It doesn't really um, doesn't often go down. But that's not the same as our cost of living. So, so what you and I spend to to fund our lifestyles on a monthly basis is not going to be the exact average of the whole country's 
way of spending money. So, you know, so if we spend more on transport, for example, then our cost of living might be higher when, when the fuel price goes up. Or if we, if we walk everywhere, we might spend less than everybody else on, on transportation. And if we buy more imported goods, then, you know, if the rand weakens, then, then imported goods would become more expensive for us. So it's important to know that we're not being lied to by, by a government or by the people who track consumer price index when they talk about that. It's just that all of us have different costs of living mm. and, and we shouldn't be, uh, you know, uh, th- thinking that the, the averages re- represents us. That's not true. There isn't actually, you know, it's a, a hint for everybody out there. You know, yeah. there isn't actually a proper measure of, of a cost of living index, which would be great if someone could build it for us. If only. But, uh, but, but CPI is the only one that we can all use at the moment. Yeah. Well, Warren. Always great chatting to you. What a wonderful personal finance feature. So much having been unpacked throughout this year. Uh, thank you so much for uh, the time then as well and giving us that lowdown then. That personal financial advisor, Warren Ingram, joining us to get a, uh, a sense then of some personal finance sentiments that you've been putting around then.